I'll begin with reading verse 8 and following. Likewise also, these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. But these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally as brute beasts. In those things they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsayings of Korah. These are spots in your feasts of charity, when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water, carried about with winds, trees whose fruit withereth, without fruit, twice dead, puffed up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And Enoch, also the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. But, beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. These be they who separate themselves sensually, having not the Spirit. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keeping yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And of some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, and to present you faultless, before the presence of his glory, with exceeding joy, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty and dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. Father, we do thank you for the reading of the scriptures. Pray, Lord, you open our hearts to it, that we may understand more fully what you have for us here in this passage, and that your word may hold true in our hearts in all things, and that we may be discerning, able to detect and know those who teach falsely and those who are the apostates, 
and pray, Father, for your continued grace and mercy to us, even that we might give glory and praise to you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here we have, of course, in the closing part of Jude here, uh, that he talks about these men who crept in unawares, if you will, who were before ordained uh, to this uh, condemnation, as he says, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness or lustful or immoral practices and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, as we know that we live in a time when there are many uh, who are apostate and turning away from the faith, uh, we are reminded of what sort, sort they are. Uh, and we're giving the various descriptions in this passage, and we are told uh, how to um, identify them, basically, because of the kinds of things that they are doing um, and uh, how they are characterized. And so these, uh, first of all, in verse 8, uh, they are called filthy dreamers. And this is an interesting phrase here. Um, in verse 8, likewise also, these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Well, as we think of a dream, we know that dreams can be upsetting sometimes, and um, but this particular phrase of uh, which is characterizing these apostates, um, there is referring to their thought pattern, thought life, if you will, and they have unclean, lustful thoughts, which dictate um, much that goes on in their lives. And he calls them filthy dreamers. Uh, other explanations and descriptions are given, of course, in this passage, and they all support this, this idea that they um, do not have a holy and a sanctified mind or heart toward God, but rather they are very worldly and lustful in their practices. And uh, perhaps we are reminded of um, what it says in John and how it talks about the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life and how that if one is given over to those things uh, then we find that uh, there is a great uh, turning away from God because they are turning unto those things which are not pleasing to God. And so in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth ever. So these, um, these characteristics, this lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, 
uh, seem to be a part of this uh, idea of being filthy dreamers. They, uh, their thoughts are not on God, nor do they seek to please God, nor are they directed by the Spirit of God, but rather the Spirit of the world. And the idea, of course, of an apostate is one who has turned away from God. And so uh, it doesn't, it's not referring to someone who is saved uh, and has turned, turned unto the world. It is referring to somebody who has rejected God. Because we know that to say that a, a believer, a believer is somehow lost would be to deny the, the uh, security of the believer. The doctrine of salvation wherein we realize that, that uh, our salvation is secure in Christ. Um, you know, it doesn't mean that somebody couldn't backslide. It doesn't mean somebody couldn't sin and then repent. But we're not talking about that kind of person, but this person is um, of the world. They're of the world. And that is why they are pursuing this uh, lifestyle which they have and which they do stand against God and His Word. And so... Um, uh, Concerning those false teachers, as they are described, you see verse 9, he says, Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not or dared not bring accusation against him, uh, a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. So uh, here we find Jude is using a godly angel to say he would not even... Uh, speak beyond the words which he is authorized to speak. The angel isn't authorized to do more than what God would allow. After all, angels were messengers of God. They were not to act on their own. They were, they were sent by God to do various, various things, um, either bring a message or, or to carry out some particular command that God gave. Well, we know that the Gabriel did bring a message to Mary about the Christ child. And we know at other times angels were given certain commands. The death angel passed over Egypt and over the houses of even Israel. Uh, but uh, they were commanded only to do what God required and as long as the Israelites had the blood upon the doorpost and upon the lintel, they were not to touch them. But the other houses in Egypt and families, which were of, of Pharaoh, really apostates, turning away from God, they, had, they were idolaters. They received the full judgment of God against them. Now, we understand that in this particular case, in the New Testament, there may have been those who were infiltrating the church with certain heretical teaching, and they were among them. And so uh, here this may have been slightly different in cultural and social uh, react, you know, interaction, but the, is it still the same that they are flagrant and arrogant apostates who do the things that they do. They are sensual, lustful, prideful, 
and worldly in their practices, and they can be spotted. Um, and um, though we aren't given exactly where this particular incident was recorded from, uh, it is one which is recorded here, and so we should not uh, question God's inspiration of this particular account. If we don't find it anywhere in the Old Testament, I guess there is some similar statement of something like this in the apophical writings. But Jude uses it here as the Holy Spirit has given him credibility to do it, and we should not question what he is saying. It is um, a characteristic of one who is godly as opposed to one who is ungodly. In verse 10, but these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally as brute beasts in those things which they corrupt themselves. And so the uh, further explanation is that these who are apostate acting in this manner are acting out of a natural fallen human nature which is not directed by God. He says he's using this, the sense here of brute beasts. Well, we know how brute beasts are. They instinctively act upon their own nature. Um, but man is not like that. He is not s supposed to be like that. But rather, man is accountable to God in conscience and in spirit. Man is accountable not like the brute beasts, but they are compared to brute beasts because that's how they act. And that is, uh, what is what is demonstrated by their life. They're acting out of a more animal-like nature rather than a nature of uh, that God has uh, means for man to be responsible to him. Uh, so uh, the, he brings this out here. In verse 11, he brings a certain woe, if you will. He says, Woe unto them, for they have gone the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward. Now, we're acquainted with Cain, of course. He rose up and, and killed his brother. Um, and uh, he was motivated in a very fleshly and sensual and um, we would probably say worldly manner. Uh, he became jealous, um, vengeful, and he took out his anger, uh, more likely against God, upon his own brother, Abel. <clears throat> his Abel, uh, Abel was righteous and, and Cain was unrighteous. Uh, and so he acted in according to that <clears throat> that same brute beast nature, which uh, <clears throat> which the apostate is uh, very much like. <clears throat> so um, Cain is an example of the religious natural man who believes in some sense of God and in religion. He wanted to bring his sacrifice. He wanted to to please God, but at the same time, he went about it in the wrong way. And that these apostates, they, 
they think that they are following some sense of, of religious belief, but really uh, they are in error. And that's what he says uh, concerning Cain. Ran greedily after the error. And of course he, he uses the example of Balaam. Uh, Balaam was supposed to be a prophet of God. Uh, but, and God even used him in a sense as a prophet. But uh, he was very reluctantly so. And his, motiv his true motivation was for reward rather than to please God. Well, isn't it true that many apostates, um, they talk about God, they may even use the word of God, but yet at the same time, they are in the business of making merchandise of God. Making merchandise of God. Um, I was recently watching a program that was demonstrated that, uh, used the account of, of Jesus um, scourging and turning over the money change, changes in the, in the temple courtyard outside. And that's where the money changes were. They had uh, the, the shekel of the day, but they couldn't use it in the temple. It had to be exchanged for a temple kosher shekel. It was, so they had these money changers out there and they would change the, the money. I suppose it was the money that was provided through Rome and they could exchange that for a, a, a kosher temple shekel. And these money makers were money changers were making money on it. You know, it's kind of like when you you go to the bank and they charge you for everything. <laughs> Your money's in there, but they're still charging you. <laughs> yeah, it's like usury. <laughs> anyway, uh, we and of course Jesus was very upset with that. They were selling animals for you know for the temple sacrifices. They were making money on everything. There was merchandising the, the God. There was merchandising God. And these people who were supposedly religious people were profiting off of it. Um, and so they, they were also running greedily after the era of Balaam uh, for reward. But Jesus, of course, turned over the money changes and uh, he took a, a whip and and scourged uh, probably many of them that were doing this, and he made the proclamation that they had turned the house of God into a merchandising place and defiled, defiled the temple. Uh, so these are, the Pharisees were likely to be called apostates in this regard because of what they were doing. And uh, of course, uh, he also mentions another another one here: the perishing, perished in the gainsayings of Korah, and we know the rebellion of Korah against Moses. And um, uh, maybe somebody remembers exactly what happened when that rebellion took place. What was the judgment? The earth swallowed them up. Huh? The earth opened up and yeah, swallowed yeah. them up. Yeah, yeah, that's it. 
Yeah, Dathan, was it Dathan and Byram? And I guess they was the one that offered the uh, tainted uh, um, incense, Dathan and Byram maybe, but Korah and his crowd, they, they went down into the earth. The earth swallowed them up because of the rebellion. And so we find that these who are apostate, uh, they're, they're everywhere in the Bible, uh, talked about in different places. Um, even in Jesus' day, there were these that were apostate, turning away from God and doing their own things. And what are they like? Verse 12, these are spots in your feasts of charity. Uh, this is generally thought to be the love feast when the, the New Testament believers came together and they had their feast of their love feast. Um, much the same as, you know, we gather together and have our potluck dinners and we pray and we, in the name of the Lord, we ask him to bless our fellowship and bless our food and, and so forth. And they can be sitting at the table with you, um, is the idea, as they were sitting with the, at the table with these early Christians in their love feasts. And they could be sitting there at the table. When they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, in other words, they don't have the fear of God, um, clouds they are without water, well, we know the clouds are supposed to give forth a refreshing blessing of water. Water is uh, so basic to human life, you can get by without food for many days, but not without water. You have to have water to survive. Everything has to have water. And so they, they, they do not bless anyone. There is nothing in them that brings a godly blessing. Carried about of winds, he says, the clouds, as it were, carried about by winds. You might get the sense of, of them being um, uh, very much uh, a, a people that have no roots in spiritual life at all. And you, you get the sense that they're just being blown around by every whim, as it were. Trees whose fruit withereth even the, there is no fruit that, that, that is a blessing to anybody. No, no life-refreshing water, the, no living water from the Word, no life-refreshing fruit from the, of the Spirit. Um, wither, uh, without fruit, he says they're twice dead. It's not just once dead, they're twice dead. Um, plucked up by the roots. Um, I think Jesus spoke about one particular tree, didn't he, in the New Testament? And uh, how that uh, he was ready to curse that tree. It didn't have any fruit on it. And, uh, but he was just getting ready to pluck it up by the roots. No, no good at all. Well, the, the apostate is like this. Thirteen raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame. And uh, we know much filth is carried about by the sea, isn't it? Uh, especially when the, when the waves are raging, that is, and there's strong winds and the, the sea is troubled and, and full of uh, great rage. And uh, even, you know, we, there's a poem that says the, um, that the wicked are like the the raging sea, they have no rest, they have no rest, you know, they, we find that the, the, the waves of the sea are constantly moving, 
constantly moving. Then the raging sea, you see, they offer no stability at all. Uh, it says, uh, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars, and here we might think of a mediator, meteorite, you know, just flying through space, and very quickly is extinguished upon itself and burnt up. Uh, it offers no uh, no blessing at all, and so these wandering stars, to whom is reserved the blackness and darkness forever. Uh, so their end is uh, is blackness and darkness. Uh, you might think of down in the the great valley of Hinnom, uh, that was uh, like Guiana. Uh, it was a place that pictured the 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 fires of hell, and the blackness of darkness that was associated with, with hell and with Hades, and with the, there's no blessing there. It is destruction. It is it is fire and brimstone. It is the wrath of God displayed upon those who have sinned against Him and have turned away from Him, and. We know the story of the rich man and Lazarus in the Bible and how that the rich man, he fared well in this world, but when he died, he went to Hades, he went to hell. And he, and his, he was so thirsty, he couldn't find any water to cool his tongue. Uh, but Lazarus uh, was just over the, the great gulf in Abraham's bosom, and he was enjoying the blessings of that God alone would give to him because God had blessed him for his faith. But uh, the rich man was not being blessed. He was in the blackness of darkness forever. And verse 14, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, uh, prophesied of these saying, and uh, in what context do you know? Do you suppose that is? Well, you suppose he had some sense of the of the um, immorality and the apostate people that were turning away from God in that civilization before the Great Flood. Maybe he had, maybe he had some un insight into that. You see, he perhaps you could see that all around him. Cosinic was a man who was walking with God, and he was so devout that God took him. Uh, without death. Um, and uh, this is, a, of course, a quite a mystery when we think about it, but it seems to be the picture, a picture, at least in the Old Testament, of the rapture, of a catching away of someone unto God. Just like Elijah, who seems to be taken up in a whirlwind of fire by the angels. Uh, again, it's a catching away, but um, uh, Enoch was the seventh from Adam, and Enoch prophesied. And so he was a prophet. God gave him revelation. And this is the revelation that he was given. Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. Well, how that fits into the, the uh, prophetic scene of revelation. Uh, and many of the New Testament writings, the day of the Lord. The Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to bring his judgment upon the earth. 
And uh, this, the message this morning was talking about the day of the Lord. So uh, we can see uh, just how that, that Enoch had a very early revelation of this, um, though perhaps he didn't understand it fully, but yet he was given this revelation. Maybe he preached it unto the, the, the people of the day around him before the great flood. We don't know. But uh, if he was given a prophecy, it was meant to be spoken to somebody. And so it could be that, that Enoch had an opportunity to give this prophecy to somebody in his own day. Uh, albeit they didn't understand him, but behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among themselves of all their ungodly deeds. Notice how many times the word ungodly is used, which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. How many times was the word ungodly used? Five? Yeah, used it quite a few times, wasn't it? Four. Well, any time that the Lord emphasizes something that many times, it must be pretty significant, isn't it? Yeah. And so this is all connected with that prophecy, it seems, that that um, Enoch was given. And we, we know that that whole civilization perished in a great flood. They perished. And they were ungodly. Insomuch that there was only eight people that were saved. It's beyond comprehension to me that there were only eight people who could be saved out of that whole civilization. And there had to be thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And, uh, and, and they perished. And, and what, what were they? Well, they had to be apostates. They, they had to be those who, who turned away from God. Uh, and uh, even though they had such men as, as Noah there to, to instruct them, or Adam even, to instruct them, or Enoch, or uh, any of the ungodly who may have been there at that time, uh, to, you know, to speak to them concerning a different lifestyle, but yet they were ungodly, completely ungodly, uh, even so much that uh, this prophecy by Enoch was given to him from God, and no doubt he did speak it, even though we aren't told the circumstances about it. But that's what prophecies were given for, to speak. Verse 16, these are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lust. So um, this is the, you know, the third area on the back of your paper there. Apostates are murmurers, complainers, lustful, respecters of persons, Mockers, sensual, ungodly, and they have not the Spirit of God. They have not the Spirit of God. So we're not talking about someone who has the Spirit of God here. Quite the opposite. Someone who has not the Spirit of God. Um, 
And so verse 16, these are murmurers. Well, we know that the, the Israelites murmured against Moses and Aaron in the Old Testament. And they murmured against God even, because to murmur against God's leader was to murmur against God. Because God established the leader. God established Moses and Aaron in their place of authority. And um, we know this is even true in churches. I mean, if you have a, a, a church that's murmuring against their pastor, either the pastor is corrupt and, and, and uh, has a problem, or else the people have a problem, and the pastor is trying to teach a godly uh, doctrinal t- truth. Um, but uh, there should be, even in a church, there should be those who are godly enough in the church to discern between those who are true murmurers and not. But it's stacked on the side of when murmuring takes place, it is against God and against God's word. It's stacked on that side, not the other side. And so we, we need to keep that in mind. These are murmurers, complainers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth speaking great swelling words. You see, they're, they're, they may be very good at rhetoric. You know, they can, perhaps they can preach up a good storm, these, uh, these uh, apostates. Uh, sometimes apostates are very well educated, you know. Um, and of course, that's one of the problems that seems to be going on today is that our higher universities have turned apostate. Yale and Harvard, that used to be places of godly learning and and uh, producing godly men have turned into uh, a, a cesspool of liberal thinkers who, who, are t- who turn away from God, not toward God. And they're turning all of their uh, students away from God, too. And so what, where we find all this anti-Semitism taking place? College, college campuses, Yale and Harvard and so forth, these uh, various college campuses are very well esteemed, you know, for their great learning. But yet, at the same time, they are apostate from God. Um, so we, we find that sometimes um, these apostates are found in high places of learning. And we should remember that usually corruption takes place from the top down not from the bottom up. Uh, people who are corrupt at the bottom, they stay there. And, you know, they might be, a, you know, of low character and so forth. But those who are corrupt at the top, they wield a lot of authority and power and, and influence, and they're able to influence a lot more people than simply some little criminal down on the bottom of the, rung, of the ladder rung. All he's going to do is line his pockets and look for the next crime to commit. But these uh, apostates, well-educated apostates in these colleges and universities, they're influencing a whole new generation of people uh, to be anti-Semitic or to be liberal or abortionists or uh, communists. Uh, There's no limit to what they can do. They're complainers. Well, we know a lot of people complain about politics. I mean, uh, that's no big secret. 
Uh, but even there's a lot of complainers about, about religion, too, about faith in God. A lot of complainers about faith in God. And when they're on the wrong side of the issue, their complaints, especially if they're liberal in thinking, their complaints are very easily picked up by the natural fallen human nature that rebels against God anyway. Because that's where everybody is. They're, they're, they're in that fallen human nature and rebelling against God if they haven't come to faith in Christ. So if you take somebody who is an apostate and they're appealing to that fallen human nature by their own liberal ideas, well, you can see those thoughts and, and so forth are very easily picked up. And, um, you know, usually you find these great think tanks in um, not only colleges and universities, but in places of higher learning and, you know, by the, um, the elite of the world. The very rich and wealthy and powerful bankers and, and people who, who run countries and nations and they have their own little think tanks and they're always pumping out their, their apostate um, rhetoric. Uh, so they're walking after their own loss, and their mouth speaking great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration. Well, see, here's another one which is very, uh, very cultivated uh, to, to admire people to the place where they become uh, quite influential. You know, whether it be Henry Kissinger who just died, or whether it be some other great world leader and politician that, that somebody is following, um, uh, Yasser Arafat or, or um, Osama bin Laden, because these are evil, or most of those are evil people. I suppose Kissinger might have had his good points, uh, but we find that even the good points of evil people are very deceptive. Uh, yet we find you know, we find this kind of thing. People admire other people, and and that's why it, it happens. Of course, in churches too. You take a, a pastor who's in a church, and he's very well spoken, very well educated, uh, happens to be very well connected. Um, you know, when I was going to school in Florida, it's Virgin Baptist Bible College. It was the General Association of Regular Baptist Churches, but even then. As a young Bible student, I could see that they were grooming certain people among their association for certain positions. They were grooming them. You could tell they were doing it. They, you know, they just had, they would pick out certain people they wanted to elevate and they would just elevate them. And this is, even among Christians, this is very, this was often done among Christians. You, you, may, you, you may know some Christian organizations and, and they seem to be very uh, elitist, elitist in what they're doing. Um, they don't pick from the bottom of the group when they want to elevate somebody. You know, they, they go to somebody who's well-connected and, they, and it, for good or bad, uh, you even find respect as a person among this sort of thing. Of course, in Jesus' day, it was the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians and um, probably the lower uh, group of the scribes would have been the Essenes, who are probably a more isolated group. Uh, but 
The scribes were often elevated, met some of them. And of course we read of Nicodemus and we read of Joseph of Arimathea. They became influential over certain groups of people probably. Um, and well, you know, there's, everywhere in society there's always some elevation of somebody, some respecter of persons. It's hard, of course, to get away from that. Uh, but in smaller groups, we're able to be more neutral when it comes to this sort of thing. And uh, Jesus even spoke about this, you know, when some rich man comes in to your group, um, you're not supposed to take him to the best seat in the house and, and, and place him there. You're not supposed to do that. <laughs> we're not supposed to be respecters of persons. Um, and we're supposed to be equally able to edify one another in faith and to see ourselves as similar to one another and not to esteem others greater than ourselves uh, or to, to esteem ourselves greater than others. We're not supposed to do that, either ourselves or anybody else. We treat one another with compassionate love and concern for each one another equally as much as we can. Well, anyway, these apostates say don't do any of that. <clears throat> They're all about promoting their own particular selves. Having many persons in admiration because of advantage. See, that kind of brings it out right there, doesn't it? Because of advantage. They want to gain something. They want to gain something. And so, you know, we find this, of course, among politicians there all the time, trying to... Um, <coughs> get on somebody's good side that they can have a better advantage. Verse 17, But beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles and our Lord Jesus Christ. So what does he say? How that they told you that there should be mockers in the last time and should walk after their own ungodly loss. And those, these mockers, of course, uh, are around and they have their moments where they like to mock um, and we find that they do they they mock God wherever they have the opportunity well in 2nd Peter chapter 3 and verse 4 there's a couple of mockers here 2nd Peter 3 4 says and saying where is the promise of his coming for since the fathers fell asleep all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant, Peter says, uh, of that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was was being overwhelmed with water perished. Well, you see, there were mockers who were mocking the second coming uh, in Peter's day, too. And, uh, of course, Jude talks about these mockers. You know, there are people, I'm sure you know people today, who kind of, why do you believe in the second coming of Jesus? Do you think he's going to come tomorrow and just take you away and get you out of the world? And, well, you know, the, everything continues as it has been from the beginning. Why, why are you so religiously fanatical, you Christians? They want to get rid of you Christians, you know. They want to get rid of the Christians. So there's these markers 
and they, there's no shortage of markers. How they, they told you there should be markers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lust. So there it is again, same coming up again, lust of the world, lust of the eyes, pride of life. These are sensual, these are like brute beasts. These, these people are acting out of their own fallen human nature. They are those who mock others, especially those who are Christians. But of course they teach their own brand of doctrine uh, in the process. And um, so as the Gnostics did in the first uh, generation as well. They had their own brand of doctrine and they were teaching it and casting aspersions upon the deity of Christ, etc. These be they who separate themselves sensually, having not the Spirit. So because they do not have the Spirit of God, they live a sensual life. Why should they, you know, they say, well, why should we deny ourselves? Uh, so they, they, they practice whatever they want in, in a moral, lustful, and sensual way. And uh, we know that... Um, this sort of thing was going on in the first generation, first century rather, um, everywhere among the Greco-Roman and various uh, uh, people of the world. To say nothing about even Judaizers. I mean, the Jewish people were not that all that morally um, chaste. They had their moments when they followed after idols and when they, when they uh, did immoral things and where they were practicing various kinds of sinful relationships. And, you know, even in Jesus' day, the woman who was taken in adultery, obviously she was practicing something other than the law required. And the woman at the well in Samaria, Jesus, of course, spoke to her, but she had five husbands and the one that she had then was not her husband. Um, you know, this sort of thing wasn't, wasn't foreign to, the old, to that period of time. Um, there, were, there were those who had turned away from God or were, or were living outside of the Spirit of God. Um, and these be they who separate themselves sensually, having not the Spirit. But of course the apostates here are, are shown in a very, a very different light in the sense that that they are denying God, they turn away from God, they're living lustful lives, they're living immoral lives, and they are characterized by various kinds of, um, of sinful practices. And uh, that uh, he is warning concerning these things. Now remember, Jude wanted, wanted uh, to write to them of their common salvation. But he wanted to say to them, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith. In verse 3. So, you know, Jude wanted to do other than this. But this was what God had laid upon his heart, what God had burdened him with. And... We, that's a, you know, it brings out a good point that we should always speak what the Lord impresses upon us. And when we know for sure that it is the Spirit of God that is impressing that upon us to say. <clears throat> well, uh, let's look at the closing few verses here. At these uh, final exhortations, verse 20, But ye, beloved, building up yourself on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. 
We build ourselves up on our most holy faith by praying in the Holy Ghost. Now, how do we do that? Well, you know, some charismatic community might say, well, you have to speak with tongues. We might have to get slain in the spirit. We might have to uh, carry on some kind of charismatic uh, endeavor to get into the Holy Spirit. But we know that is not to be true. That is not true. What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Spirit of God, that ye are not your own, that ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit that belong to God. We, we have the Holy Spirit in us. How do we pray in the Holy Spirit? By simply praying earnestly and contending for the faith to pray uh, ardently, to be watchful, to be... Um, as it were, the scripture says in Ephesians 5, I believe it is, be filled with the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your hearts to the Lord. Um, the church of Jesus Christ is to preach, is to pray, is to sing. And all of our focus, are, we are all Christocentric. We're Christocentric, Christocentric on Christ. Everything is Christ-centered. Therefore, to be Christ-centered is to then have the privilege of praying in the Spirit of God. To be Christ-centered. There is no other um, answer, really, because um, we know that God the Holy Spirit is the one who is behind all godly interaction, prayer, communication, exhortation, edification, uh, anything that we do that is to bring glory to God is to be in the Spirit of God. And so we are to pray in the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, not the, not the worldly spirit like the, like the world is doing. You know, you, know, you hear a lot about about praying, our thoughts are with you, our thoughts and prayers are with you, the world will say. But what do they mean by that? Well, maybe something altogether different than what you think. It may be nothing but rhetorical verbiage. Um, and, I, and I suppose, you know, even as Christians, we sometimes use that phrase, I'll pray for you a little bit too frequently and then don't do it. We perhaps we do. Um, and so we need to be reminded that when we do uh, say we're going to pray for somebody, we should at some point either pray privately or we should uh, bring it up again publicly to make that a matter of prayer. We should, we should take it a little more seriously perhaps when we, when we say something like that. And uh, I think probably a good thing to do if it's somebody that's asked you to pray for them and you say, yes, I'll pray for them, pray for you, that either when you get home, immediately pray for them, or when you have a moment in quiet, even it might be in the same place or surroundings, you might immediately find some place you can just immediately pray for them. Rather than to put it off, because <clears throat> when we do put it off, we tend to forget about that. Um, and so uh, I, I prefer to do that. If I'm going to, if I ask some, if I tell somebody I'm going to pray for them, I try to do it just as soon as I can, um, rather than to wait, because I, I do forget. And, and we shouldn't. We shouldn't. 
So to pray in the Spirit, verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. And see, these are all very good orthodox teachings. To pray in the Spirit of God, to keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Now these things are, are so basic to our, our salvation, but it is the basic things that keep us closer to God and the basic things that that help us to follow through with what it means to be true to God. It is the basic things. Um, not some new revelation that somebody has told you, but the basic things are, are, the, are the things that we need to do. Um, and they bring us closer to God in relationship to Him. Verse 22, and of some have compassion making a difference. So he says, you know, we shouldn't forget the, the compassionate appeal here. We should be compassionate toward people. Compassionate to the apostate? Well, maybe you can, you can win somebody who is an apostate turning away from God. Maybe you can, through compassion, rather than through, um, well, I don't know, sometimes we strike out in, in uh, oh, I'll tell him a thing or two, or I'll, I'll set his wagon straight. Um, or I'll, you know, we, it, it isn't really compassion we appeal to sometimes, it's rather almost like retribution, you know, as if we're going to be uh, a little bit of the wrath of God in his place. But compassion isn't like that. Uh, Jesus exercised compassion many, many, many times over and over and over again. Uh, he exercised compassion when he didn't have to. Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not for of such are the kingdom of God. I mean, the most innocent compassion right there. The disciples said, oh, these children are bothering our, our master. We've got we to get them away from him. But no, he's compassionate. He wanted to. He wanted them to, to come to him. But, you know, every miracle you look at, I mean, there's compassion involved in it in the life of Christ. He was a compassionate savior. Even to the point where he died for our sins upon the cross to, you know, the ultimate uh, compassionate act, if you will. And uh, so he says, Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And of some have compassion, making a difference. You can make a difference, you see. You can do something um, which God would, would, would use uh, in your compassionate appeal. Verse 23, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. It's kind of like they're ready for the judgment. They're ready to go off into perdition's flames. Compassion can perhaps even pull someone out of that dire situation. Now, you know, since we're not God, we don't know what God is doing in a person's life, except that he gives us some basic rules of faith to do. And, and as we emphasize and, and uh, use those basic rules of faith for prayer and for love toward others and for a compassionate uh, desire to reach someone for, with, for Christ, uh, to turn them away from their present course of action which seems to be destructive, judgment even, it may be God will, will save them.
it may be that he will. And since we're his servants, we're, su we're supposed to be able, willing to do that. Um, even the garment spotted by the flesh, you see, he's still on that same theme here. These, these people who are sensual and these people who are lustful and these people who are prideful and uh, arrogantly so. Um, and, you know, sometimes we just think of these, these kinds of people who are apostate as being those who are trying to take the place of others who are doing teaching. But maybe they are apostate in faith, but they, they're just lost. Just plain lost. Maybe Romans chapter 1, you know, is a good sense of this. You know, these people who have given themselves over to idolatry, these people who have given themselves over to immoral practices, and they're just on this downward spiral into destruction. Um, you know, the gay rights people, you know, these people who are, are so involved in this, in this um, aberrant lifestyle, which is very immoral and, and so forth. Have you ever had an opportunity, perhaps, to be a friend of one of these people? I know it's difficult, I know. I have maybe a couple of times I've had an opportunity. But um, it's difficult. But maybe, maybe not impossible, evidently. Not impossible. Because, you know, Jude seems to be saying here that that you may be able, by your compassion, your compassion, pull them out of the fire of judgment because of their involvement in this, these, fleshly, these, these fleshly pursuits that they're in, in their turning away from God. And maybe you'll have an opportunity. I don't know uh, if it ever made any difference. I was working into Sears a long time ago when I was uh, going to Bible college and I was in the men's department and there, there was another guy that was working in there with me and he was a, he was a, um, a homosexual, a gay man. And, um, you know, we used to have conversations and he knew I was a pastor and he knew what I stood for and I talked to him several times. I don't know if he ever made any change in his life, but, you know, I, I tried to talk to him anyway. I mean, it wasn't like I should treat him like a leper or something. I didn't do that. I, you know, I just tried to befriend him, and we had lunch together once in a while. He was, he was a pleasant man, pleasant guy, but he was on the wrong path. And whether he ever turned, I don't know, but, you know, you know you have a few minutes here and there sometimes to speak to somebody. And you, sometimes you can take the opportunity to do that. Verse 24, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. Well, it's a nice doxology, and it's very nice, and anybody could use it as an ecclesiastical, uh, benedictory-type statement. But it means much more than that, doesn't it? It means much more than that. We're talking of a, about a personal relationship that we have with Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. He is the one who has made it possible that we should not fall. 
or lose our salvation. And that God alone is our Father in heaven and God alone is our true, our, our true uh, Lord and Savior. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the triunity of the Godhead. May glory and praise and honor be unto him both now and forever and ever. Amen. It is a statement of our faith in the one we know to be our true Lord and Savior. And who is able to keep us from falling. And in contrast to that, you have the apostates who are fallen have fallen far from God and know not the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, as much as we are to be on guard that we don't um, enter into their um, deception, we need to have a compassionate heart toward them if we can possibly win any of them away from that life of godlessness. As he, as he talks about there in verse 15. Uh, they are ungodly. And so Jude has some, he really had a very important message to give to the church. One that is just as, as necessary today as it was then in the first century. Shall we pray? Loving Father, we do thank you for your word to us and a reminder to us of the love of God a reminder to us that we are to remain firm and contend for the faith. A reminder to us that we have some basic godly tenets of our faith that we are not to neglect, but rather promote most seriously that we ourselves may be kept from falling or we may ourselves be able to win others unto our Savior. So we ask your blessing, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.